get our Bibles out this morning. As the children are leaving, we're in the book of Philippians. Last time we were together, did an introduction on the book of Philippians and preached our way through that. So we are going to be in Philippians chapter 1 this morning, uh, verses 1 and 2. We're going to cover a lot of ground, verses 1 and 2. How you doing out there? Let's thank God for the word, and then I will read Philippians uh, verse 1 and 2, chapter 1. Father, we thank you this morning that we can come together in this place and worship you, Lord God, and get lost in your presence. Father, I thank you, Lord, that as we reach out to you and worship you, reach back to us, and you prepare our hearts, and you break up the fallow ground and till up the soil of our hearts to receive the word. So, Holy Spirit, drive the word deep within our hearts this morning, let it permeate us and get into our spirits, Lord, so that we have something to bring up out of the reservoir of your word that's been tucked into our spirits this morning. Father, we pray that these two verses would change us, that would challenge us, that would uh, we would leave here changed by the power of your word. We ask it in Jesus' name, and the church said, amen. Philippians chapter 1, remember this is an epistle of joy. Paul is in chains, he's being led around by Roman centurions under house arrest. He's going before uh, all the different leaders and rulers, and he's giving a testimony of the gospel. He's on his way uh, to martyrdom eventually. I think at some points he's realizing that, although he keeps his hopes up and he keeps positive, he realizes that he himself is being poured out as a drink offering. And so we catch up here with Paul in chains, pe- preaching uh, the epistle of joy, and Philippians 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're going to stop there and you say, Pastor, that's just like, you know, that's just a little introduction. That's just a little, you know, uh, salutation as the letter, as the epistle begins. Listen to me. Nothing in the Word of God is there as filler. How many times have we read a book, Lou? You read a book, it's 10 chapters. They could have said it in one chapter, but they drag it out, right? And, and there's a lot of filler in there. There's some tangents. There's some, you know, just stuff that's not pertinent to the topic. And then all of a sudden you get to the, the heart of the matter and there's not much information there. The Word of God is not like that. It doesn't just tuck one gem in the middle of a whole bunch of filler. And every part of this is the word of God. And so it has something to say to us. It's full of meaning. It's full of insight. And some people might see this, well, it's just a little introduction. But everything that's said here is powerful and it's alive because it's the word of God. Now, you might see this as a greeting to open up the epistle. But it's more than just a formality or a standard approach to letter writing, because it's God's word, it has meaning and insight. Now, Paul starts off and he says this, and this is powerful, Paul and Timothy, so Paul the apostle, Timothy, his protege, his son in the Lord, he he notes Timothy, he says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. Say bondservant. That term is chock full of insight. When we pull it apart, we're going to realize that for the for Paul to call himself and his, uh, his son in the Lord, his protege, Timothy, a bondservant, means something. A bondservant is essentially a slave. 
in the sense that he or she gives themselves to the will of another, devotes themselves to pleasing their master by disregarding their own interests. So when Paul says, I am a bondservant of Jesus Christ, he's saying, I'm a slave to the kingdom of God, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have given myself to the will of another. I don't serve my own agenda. I don't serve my own interests. I serve my master, and I disregard everything according to what my master has purposed me to do. Wow. Now, that's pretty deep, and it's pretty heavy. And, you know, it's funny, as a preacher, when you bring a point like this out, sometimes the the silence and the gasps suck the air out of the room. Because how many of us would like to confess that we are a slave to anything? The whole idea of being a slave to to a, uh, you know, an addiction or a slave to um, uh, food or a slave to drink or anything. We might know that we're in bondage, but to come right out and admit it, that takes a lot of humility. No, I got this under control. I got my drinking under control. I got my eating under control. Your waistline says no. You know, uh, there's a time where I was punching holes in the belt in the wrong direction. Now, thank God, I'm punching holes in the right direction. But, you know, it's like we can, we, can, we can fool ourselves and say, no, I'm not in bondage. I'm not a slave. But because why? Because it's an, it's an embarrassment. It's a, it's a humbling thing to admit I'm in bondage to something. Paul has no, uh, he, no shame with this. It's not anything. He revels in it. He says, I am a slave to, to the gospel, a slave to Christ. I don't do my own thing. I do his thing. Amen. You see, this bondservant concept is something that we need to understand and embrace because you and I, as Christians, bought by the blood of the Lamb, by the blood of Jesus Christ, we have no business being independent and willful and doing our own thing. We need to be busy like Jesus was doing the Father's business, amen? And the problem in the body of Christ is that there's only a few people clapping. Because, yeah, man, I'm, I want to be busy about doing the Father's business. And, and some, you know, sometimes the rest of us are like, man, I got a whole lot of things to do. I got, I, got, I got things to do. And I understand we all have things to do. I have things to do. There's no shortage of things to do. But his things have to be the things that we do before we do our own things. Come on, say amen. Say amen. Paul says, I'm a bondservant. I'm in bondage to the gospel. I'm not here to establish Paul. I'm not here to build a kingdom for Paul. No, I'm about the Father's business, and I am a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a powerful point that he's making here. You see, uh, a servant of God, uh, to be a bondservant, to be a servant of God, that requires the surrender of our own interests. This is one of the hardest things we'll ever have to do is to surrender our own interests. Think about Jesus. When he left his father's side and came down, born of a virgin as a baby, entered into life helpless as a baby. There's no more helpless situation as a baby. He leaves his father's right hand, comes, and he, he serves. He didn't come to be served, but he serves. And he, he's willing to die to pay the cost of sin, even the death on the cross. The death on the cross was the most humiliating of all deaths. It was the death for the worst of criminals. 
Jesus didn't come to do his own thing, to, to serve his own interests. Even Jesus, being fully God, came in the flesh, being fully man, served the Father's will. To the point where he could say, without fear of contradiction, I only do what I see my father doing. If anybody could have did what he want, you know, Jesus looking at the Pharisees, I'm just going to hit these guys with a bolt of lightning. I'll just make it come close. I'll just scare them. No, he could have did it. Some of us would have did it. But Jesus is like, no, it's not time. I'm not here to reveal myself. I'm not here to establish myself. I'm not here to do my own thing. Father, what's the next thing you have for me to do? a bondservant, this idea of us surrendering our own self-interest, our willful independence. Do you realize how willful we can be, how independent we can be, to, that we would, we would fight and push against the will of God and the sovereignty of God, his personal uh, agenda for our lives? We can be so willful. It's, our, it's that flesh part of us. That's why God created us in his image, and he gave us what? He gave us a free will. And we can either submit that will to the things of God, or we can establish our will and do our own thing. And we can be really willful. We can be really independent. You know, God never designed us to be independent. He designed us to be interdependent. You see, the body's not like this. It's like this. We're interdependent of each other we need each other we need each other's support each other's love each other's encouragement each other's gifts each other's come on thank god for the gifts in the body of christ you're not listening to me you're still thinking bond servant slave this is and everything else is just like charlie brown's teacher right now wah, 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 wah. track with me we need each other. We're a body. We're not to be independent of each other or independent of God. But it's that willfulness that we have, and it needs to be crucified, and we need to surrender, and we, see, we need to not see ourselves as independent contractors, but as servants of the Most High God, amen? You know, <laughs> I remember when I used to deliver furniture back before when we were getting married, we were engaged, and I used to deliver furniture for a big company in Rochester, and we had these big trucks with the logos on them and uniforms and everything. And, and, you know, we had to follow the rules and do what we were told. And then we would have these trucks rolling, these just white trucks, and they were independent contractors. These guys would do what they want, show up when they want. They made more money than us. None of us liked them. <laughs> and the thing is, there are no independent contractors in the kingdom of God. We are either servants of God, bondservants to the Lord Jesus Christ, slaves to the gospel, or, you know, we're just doing our own thing on our own. Oh, praise the Lord this morning. So there's got to be a surrender that takes place. You know, think about it. Do most Christians behave like they are slaves or bondservants to Jesus? Or do most Christians that we know, uh, you know, act like consumers of Christ? See, we can either be a bondservant or a consumer. Now, our Western mentality of, you know, being consumers and capitalism and the customer's always right has crept into our concept of what it means to serve in the kingdom of God. Now, come on, track with me. Don't die on me now. Don't fall asleep on me out there. 
This is important. Why? Because the shift needs to be made from us doing our own thing and being independent and, and being consumers to, to being sold out. It's like the song we sung this morning, amen, that, that we would be sold out, that we would pour ourselves out. In first service, we had words just confirming what I was preaching here. I wish that we heard them in second service, but the Holy Spirit's trying to make a point to us today. That it's not time for us to be doing our own thing in our own way. It's time for us to be on our knees asking God, what's the next step for your will in my life at this time? Because I don't want to be independent. I don't want to be willful. I want to be surrendered today. But most Christians don't see themselves as bondservants. They see themselves as consumers. Now, a slave or a bondservant serves without resistance or hesitation. The bondservant doesn't say to the master, no, I'm not doing that. I'm, I'm, I'm taking a personal day today. The bondservant doesn't say, no, nah, that's too hard. Get somebody else to do it. No, the bondservant hears the master's will and does it. The consumer serves when it, when it suits them. The consumer serves when it benefits them. The consumer serves when they have to. And if they don't like the way it's going, well, then they pick up and they go someplace else. How many immature, backwards Christians do we have that are stuck in sin and stuck in bondage because they won't sit under the word of God and they, and they get the pastor preaching on something and, it, and it, 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 you know, it causes them to have to change it. And like, I'm out of here. And they go to the next church and they sit there for a while and the Holy Spirit does it again. And they're out of here and they go and they're going all around and they never get planted and they never grow and they stay immature because we think like consumers instead of bond servants. Now, I know this is not a shout and hallelujah message here this morning, but, you know, we got to say ouch or amen every once in a while. Listen, you only have to hear this for like 35 minutes. I had to wrestle with this all week. Amen. So feel my pain here this morning. Be partakers in the suffering with me this morning. Because I'm telling you, this will shake you to the core. All our worship songs, all our prophetic words, this message here today, the Holy Spirit is making a point to us. It's time for us to serve the purposes of God. It's time for us to lose our independence. It's time for us to be busy about the Father's business. Religious consumers have a huge sense of entitlement. They expect a full measure of God's blessings, of God's provision, of God's protection, and simultaneously they reject the lordship of Jesus Christ. Do you see how this is foolishness, amen? If he's not lord of all, he's not lord at all, amen? He's got to be lord of all. You say, well, Jesus, you can have this part of me, and I'll, you know, I'll serve you, and I'll, I'll answer my calling, but this stuff over here, this is all mine. Don't mess with it. Don't touch it. No, that's not the Lord's day. That's, the, that's Rick's day. Amen, amen. Thank you, brother. You're helping me. Thank you. So understand, some things need to change. Why? Because I've heard it said before that you can't expect a million-dollar blessing on the dime's worth of dedication. Oh, but grace, grace. Amen. Thank God for grace. But sometimes we reap what we sow. Amen. And God's looking for people who will sell out, who will let themselves be poured out, who will put the call above all, who will put the gospel first, who will put the lost first, who will put Jesus first. Amen. He's looking for people like that at this time. He's looking for people who will 
just lay down their own agendas and their own desires. Listen to me. When we do that, it's not like we've lost anything. Jesus said, you know, if you give up houses and lands and all of these things for me, will you not have more in this life and in the life to come? Come on, that's what Jesus said. But he said if you try to keep your life, if you try to find your life, you're going to lose it. Some of us are losing a quality of life because we're willful and we're doing our own thing and we see ourselves as consumers and we use the gospel, you know, as a means to, you know, somehow establish our own thing and that's not the gospel. Oh, thank you, Lord. So I'll move on because only two people are encouraging me at this point. (laughs) Something needs to change in the body of Christ. There needs to be a shift in the way we approach Jesus in these last days. From independent consumers to bond servants. That shift has to start in our hearts. Father, let it start with me. Let it start in this place. Let it start today. Paul and Timothy bondservants of Jesus Christ. Listen, he continues, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Let's, let's stop there. He, he introduces himself as a bondservant, and then he refers to the people as saints. And I want you to see that here. Paul often refers to the people at the churches that have been planted and are growing uh, as saints. And the definition of saint is a holy one. And when you think about sainthood, you know, many of us look at sainthood from a religious perspective and we see that it's something that's out of our grasp. Holy ones, these perfect ones with a good pedigree and all the great performance and all that stuff. Listen, everyone who is born again, who's in communion with Jesus, who's being sanctified by the Holy Spirit knows this. We are all far from perfect. Amen. You know, when, when you don't, before I knew Jesus, I thought I was pretty good. Then I got saved, and the Holy Spirit started untangling my heart, and I'm like, man, I didn't know that was there. Where did that come from? Oh, that's been there all the time. Yeah, everybody else knew it. You didn't know it. You know, and, oh, where did that come from? You know, sin and bad character and, and flaws and all that stuff, it's kind of like garlic breath. You're usually the last one to know you've got it. Everybody else knows, ooh, Caesar salad today, huh? Whoa. But uh, we're the last one to know. But the closer we get to the Lord, you know, and the, and the more we cooperate with the sanctification process, the more we realize, man, I am so far from perfect. So the, this idea of sainthood and, and is something that we categorically recoil from. When I say you're all saints, there I can I can see people in the spirit out there going, not me, not me. No, because why? Because we see the imperfections and the flaws in our life. We're ever mindful of, you know, how much progress we need to make. And the thing is that we have a wrong perspective of sainthood here. Over 60 times in the New Testament, from Matthew to Revelation, the body of Christ is referred to as the saints. Ephesians 4.12 for the equipping of the saints for the works of service to the building up of the body of Christ. You see, that's who we are. We, the people of God, are the saints in Christ Jesus. We are to be uh, those who are, you know, doing works of service. Why? Because we're bondservants. And our works of service, when we do them with the giftings and the anointings of the Holy Spirit, they build up the body of Christ. Did you see what was there in Ephesians 4.12? A beautiful picture of how the church is supposed to function 
And some of you are still stuck on the fact that he, he just called me a saint. And I'm still not good with that because I know I'm messed up. And pastor, if you know how messed up I was, you wouldn't call me a saint. Listen, if you knew how messed up I was, you wouldn't call me a pastor. Right? Sometimes my heart, you know, the, the, I've been walking with the Lord since I'm 14 years old, and there's things that I'm just seeing in my heart that, God, you got to change that. And they're saying, yeah, we've been praying for you. Thank God you're finally catching on with what we all knew. But the closer we get to him, the more we see our own imperfections. I remember I shared this story a while ago. I, I used to work in a warehouse at Pepsi. I was a fork truck driver when we were newly married, just driving a fork truck on night crew, you know, filling up soda trucks, praise God, the ministry. You know what I'm talking about. And so uh, my mentors told me, spend two years on your marriage before you go into ministry. So Kim and I did that. And I'm, I'm in there, and, you know, I got the call of God in my life. I got the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I, I got a love for people. And so the night crew, you know, whenever they had troubles, they would send me up to talk to the CEO. They'd send me up, the night crew pastor. So I'd go up there, and I remember going up, and here's this guy. I can't, I can't remember his name. He had like, he had like a, a really expensive suit on with, you know, $1,000 shoes and a pocket scarf, and he's sitting in his big office. And here I come up out of the dungeon of the night crew, covered in soda and, and all I mean, just dirt and filth. And I walk into his office, and the light hits me, and I'm like, man, am I shabby. And I got to talk to this guy. And I look at myself, and I'm so shabby. And the Holy Spirit showed me that's what it's like when the truth and the purity of God touches us and illuminates us. We see our shabbiness. And the last thing we feel like, Lou, is a saint. But the truth is our definition of sainthood is skewed because religious people have taken it and have hijacked it. You know, the, this idea of sainthood from a religious perspective is someone who is outwardly, religiously perfect and someone whose performance and their spiritual accomplishments are perfect, that they have this resume and this pedigree. You know, some religious systems make these tests. Well, if you're going to be a saint, you have to have done this, and you have to have piety, and you have to have purity, and you have to have two miracles, and you have to have three witnesses. I'm like, where do they get these, this stuff? I've been looking all through here. I can't find that anywhere. See, this religious idea of sainthood is not biblical. And that's why when Paul says to all the saints, we recoil because we don't have the biblical definition of it. The biblical truth is this. It's not our spiritual performance. It's not our resume. It's not our pedigree. It's only because we are in Christ that the blood of Jesus makes us pure and makes us all saints before God. It's the blood of Jesus. Stop it with your pedigree. Stop it with your diploma. Stop it with your performance. What are you auditioning for? You want to be a Pharisee? You want to be a Sadducee? No, it's the blood, amen. When Jesus saved us, he covered us, and positionally, we are holy in Christ Jesus. God looks down at us. When God looks at me and he looks at you, he doesn't see all the sins and the flaws and the failures and the bad choices. If you're in Christ, he sees Jesus. And he says, they're my holy ones, they're my saints, there's my church, there's the body of Christ. Come on, begin to think of yourself differently. Begin to think of yourself biblically. Begin to think of yourself and see yourself how God sees you. But if you only knew, he knows. 
<laughs> While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you, Jesus. So we're all saints, not because of our performance, not because of our pedigree, but because of the blood of the Lamb. So introduce yourself to Saint so-and-so next to you and say hello this morning. Go ahead. Good morning, Saint Wade. Amen. Saint Riley in the house. So he can look how much fun we're having. This is just the introduction. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints. We just found out that we are bond servants to God. We, we serve the master's purposes. We are saints because of the blood of Christ. He says to, the, to Jesus who are in Philippi, listen, it continues here, including the overseers and the deacons. Let's stop there. Last week, we, as we preached through a little introduction, we noted that Paul salutes and he points out the leadership structure and he mentions some leadership positions directly in his greeting. The fact that Paul salutes specific positions of leadership within the church gives us a little insight into the church leadership structure. Now, there's been, uh, you know, if you look at the scripture when the New Testament church's birth and how there was uh, the, the, the apostles and then you had uh, other offices and then you, you installed pastors and you built up churches and then there was elders. All of this shows us the biblical leadership structure of the church. How many know there are churches that don't follow biblical structure and it's man-made? Now, look, it's not for me to judge the man-made. It's just that we ain't doing that here. We're going to go with God-made. We're going to go with what the Bible says, amen. <laughs> and one of the things, you know, I can't find anywhere here in Scripture where they had boards and voting and, and, and elections and all that stuff. The only time they ever elected anybody, they drew straws and they picked a, 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 an apostle to replace the one that killed himself, Judas, right? And then God eventually said, that wasn't my idea. You guys are drawing straws over here. I already picked the apostle Paul. So I don't know. The only time they had a vote, they messed it up, and it was all flesh. So it's not about boards, and it's not about elections, and it's not about the, the rich people or the popular people or the, the pillars in the community controlling the church. It's about God-ordained leadership that he installs himself, amen? God-appointed, not self-appointed. And so here's an insight into the structure of the church. And uh, Paul is going to mention two specific offices that are named here in the introduction. And he, that highlights their importance in the body of Christ. Look what he says here. To the overseers, say overseers, and deacons. So we're going to take a look at overseers and deacons. They are mentioned here. And their offices are mentioned, and it shows why they're important to the body of Christ. Number one, let's look at the overseer. What is an overseer, and what does an overseer do? The word overseer, you know, right away, that anybody who hears that word, if you think of what it suggests or what it creates in the theater of mind, nobody likes to be lorded over by anybody. Okay, it, this word overseer is not meaning that someone's lording over us. The word in the Greek is episkopos, and it's used five times in the New Testament, and it has significant implications uh, to understand the implementation of it in church leadership. An overseer, episkopos, is a guardian or a bishop, and really their role is expressed in pastors, elders, or bishops. Now, all of those words I just mentioned 
all mean the same thing. A pastor, an elder. The pastor is really the head elder, a bishop. You know, some men of God will call themselves ministers. Some denominations call them vicars, pastors, reverends, bishop. All the same thing. They are overseers, episcopos. Are you tracking with me today? Amen. Let's get a biblical understanding of leadership. These words are interchangeable, pastor, elder, bishop. Here we call our overseers, our God-ordained leadership, we call them pastors. It signifies that they are those who have been placed within the body of Christ to watch over, to shepherd, and to care for the local church. God's word likens us unto sheep. And sheep need shepherds. I don't know about you, but I am thankful for the people God put in my life to shepherd me, to get me from when I was a little lamb to a sheep to the old mutton chop that I am now. But I, I, I've, needed, I've needed that in my life, and I think you can agree that we all need that in our lives, amen, leadership. Because sheep without a shepherd, Jesus said there, sheep without a shepherd are dead already. All sheep can do when they're in trouble is bleat. They just go, bah, and you know what that is? That's the dinner bell for the wolves. It's only the shepherd that protects the sheep and cares for the sheep and keeps the wolves away, amen? David said, I killed the lion and the bear. When? When he was in combat? No, when he was a shepherd. You see, we need shepherds. We need overseers. We need the episcopos to protect and defend and to care for and to nurture the sheep. Now, understand as a high calling as it is to be an overseer, we are all at very best just under shepherds. Jesus is the head shepherd. Amen. Jesus is the head shepherd. You say, oh, this is Pastor Rick's church. Don't ever say that. This is the church of Jesus Christ. It's his church. Amen. I just work for him. <laughs> Overseers are important. First Peter 2.25 for you were continually straying like sheep. Why is that? Because that's what sheep do. You know, animals need someone to take care of them. You know, you, you can't just throw cattle out there and you think, you know, well, you just let them eat the grass. You don't realize what will happen to them. There's coyotes chasing them. They, they drink bitter water. They get sick. They get stuck in sloughs. They almost drown. They're, cows are, they're not smart. <laughs> And you think, well, yeah, cows aren't smart. Sheep are worse. Sheep will get stuck in holes. Sheep will run towards the, I mean, sheep are, they're, they're shot. Animals need help. We just got a bunch of chickens. And now, you know, we got 10 chickens that we had. And, and I'm walking around the property. And them chickens follow me everywhere. I walk outside. They come running. I never seen a chicken run. I turn around. They're all behind me. Why? Because I give them food. I give them water. I, you know, we, we had 10. We lost one to Mr. Fox. Let's have a moment of silence. I'm after that fox now. You're going to see me come up here preach with one of them foxtails on my hat. Because I, why? That's my chicken. He ain't my chicken. Animals need help. They need shepherds. They need somebody to tend them. They need somebody to watch out for them. We're sheep. We need shepherds. Thank God for the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, who looks after us and protects us from the wolves. But thank God for overseers that labor. And the Bible says that pastors watch for our soul. 
So pray for your pastor. Pray for the pastors here. Pray for all the pastors that preach the gospel in Dutchess County. There's a lot of good men of God out there that love God, that have laid their lives down. Let's realize it's bigger than us. It's the body of Christ. And thank God for overseers. Now, the qualifications of an overseer are listed in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. So if you're taking notes today, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. I encourage you to read through the through this slowly in your own time and digest some of these things here that the the word of God is spelling out as qualifications for those who would want to be overseers, who would want to be pastors. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Listen to verse 3. Not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not be conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So there are the requirements, the basic, you know, to get in, to be a minister, to be a pastor. We've got to meet those qualifications. God listed them. We say, well, some of that's a tall order. Absolutely, it's a very serious job. And those who take it as a vocation or they think, you know, it's what they want, they chose to do. Listen, you have got to be called to ministry or you'll never make it in ministry. And if you stay in ministry and you're not called, you're going to hurt sheep and the flock's going to be scattered. So a trustworthy saying, a man who aspires to the office of overseer. Overseers are important. Pastors are important. We need to pray for our pastors in the body of Christ. Number two, let's talk about deacons. Now, while the word episkopos was mentioned five times in the New Testament, the word deacon is mentioned 29 times. And right out of the box, that suggests that there needs to be more deacons than pastors. Do you ever go to some place where there's more, they're all chiefs and no Indians? You go to some of these churches, everybody's got a title, and there's only two people left in the congregation? Something's wrong. Somebody's too much into titles. Yeah. And you know what? There's got to be more deacons. There's got to be more Indians than chiefs. And so 29 times in the New Testament, the word for deacon is diakonos. It means servant minister. If you're taking notes down today, write that down. Servant minister. Regardless of our callings or what we're called to do, all of us are called to be servant ministers in the church. We've all got a job to do. Now, if you're out there going, uh-uh, I got too much to do to take on more work. Well, as being part of the body of Christ, you've got gifts and talents, and God expects you to use them. Don't bury them. Use them, amen. We are all servant ministers. When you see ushers ushing, they are serving as ministers. When you see the musicians playing and using their gifts. They are servant ministers. When you see people in child ministry and in the administration and all of what makes Full Gospel Center work here, they are all servant ministers doing the work of deacons within the body of Christ. 
ah, we just thought, you know, we just had to sit here and listen to what you came up with up here. No, all of us have a part to play, a job to do, a gift to use. And all of us are servant ministers. Now, there's a specific call to being a deacon, uh, but I want want you to realize generally all of us are called to be servant ministers, especially including me. The higher you go up the the food chain, as it were, in the body of Christ, the more of a servant you've got to be. The less your time is your own, the less, you know, room you have to just, you know, shirk your responsibility because it's too serious. So episcopos, overseers, diaconos, deacons, many times more deacons than uh, pastors. And so there are more Indians than chiefs, and it works out good that way. Our text in Philippians 1.1 is the first to mention the word deacon in Scripture. This is the first place the word deacon appears in Scripture, although the concept and the role of the deacon had been established in the early church all the way back in the book of Acts. The role of deacon as a servant minister was implemented when the church began to grow explosively. Realize the apostles are using their anointing. The upper room happens, Lou. The Holy Spirit falls. Peter preaches a little simplistic message, and 3,000 people get saved. Boom, instant megachurch. Now you got, you've got the apostolic order there, and you've got the episcopos as the, the, the church leaders, but, you know, you need workers. Why? Because now you've got 3,000 people. And so in the book of Acts here in chapter 6, verses 2 and 4, we see the first installment of deacons within the body of Christ. It says this in Acts 6, 2 through 4. So the 12 called a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles should not spend our time We apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. So what happened here? They needed servant ministers to do the nuts and bolts mechanics that kept the ministry going. Why? Because the episcopos, the overseers, couldn't be doing all these, you know, little detailed things and running this program and cleaning the building and setting the chairs and, and, and vacuuming the rugs. Why? Because they needed to be praying and studying the word of God so they had the word of the Lord for the people. Amen? Look, I'm a doer. I'm a hands-on guy. I'll, I'll do anything and have fun doing it. But this is, my, this is my first responsibility. I've been in this church since I'm 14 years old. I've ran every ministry. I've done children's ministry. I was a youth pastor for five years. I've cleaned toilets. I've built half of the classrooms here. I put that kitchen in. I've built walls. Whatever. I'll do it. I love it. It's a great thing, but I got to do this first. Sometimes I'd be like, well, I'd rather go swing a hammer today. Let me just, just let me do that. But understand, it takes the whole body to make the church work, amen? And what's happening here this morning is not the output of one man. It's the output of all those who are here serving with their gifts, the servant ministers, the deacons. And it is a high calling to be used in the service of the kingdom of God. So what are you doing today? What's your role here? What ministry are you involved in? Where do you serve? What gifts do you have? Are you using them? You say, well, I, you know, I don't want to be a deacon. I just want to be, you know, I just want to be a, a spectator and a listener. 
Well, I can't find that in any of the, the, the fivefold ministries or the spiritual gifts. So diakonos, servant ministers, we need them. We need workers within the body of Christ. If you run a ministry, if you're involved in ministry, if you're working with the children, if you're serving in any capacity, you are serving as a deacon within the body of Christ. Now, let me just show you two out of the seven deacons that were installed here in Acts chapter six became very notable. Some people might think, oh, deacon, that's no big deal. That's just nothing. That, that's not a big job or a high call. Yes, it is. Two of the seven, listen, there was a man named Stephen and a man named Philip the Evangelist, and they were two out of the seven people installed here in Acts. Now, Stephen had a beautiful heart to serve and to preach the gospel. He would bring the gospel to unbelievers or to the religious crowd, and he was able to articulate and debate with them in such a powerful way that every time he locked up with people in the the defense of the gospel, he would come out on top and, and he would prove to them that the kingdom of God was real, that Jesus was risen from the dead. He had a powerful teaching gift. He had a powerful uh, uh, gift to just be, you know, one uh, who defended the faith. And he was a deacon. Now, listen, he, he was a compelling witness. He could preach the gospel. He had a servant's heart. And later he would become the first martyr of the Christian church. He was a powerful man of God who poured himself out as a drink offering for the purposes of God. While they were stoning Stephen and the apostle Paul was there overseeing it, the heavens were opened up to him and he saw the heavenly realm and he rejoiced in it. As he left this life serving God as a servant minister, he went right into the presence of God. Stephen, powerful, servant minister, powerful, also, there's Philip the Evangelist. Philip preached and performed uh, miracles. Church history says that he was a, a one who had miracles come through his ministry. He was a preacher of the word. He witnessed and baptized the Ethiopian, the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch? He's traveling in a carriage. He's trying to read the Old Testament prophets. He couldn't understand it. Who shows up? Philip the Evangelist. Well, who the heck is he? He's, he's a deacon that was uh, installed in the church. And he sits in there, and he opens up the scripture to this guy, and then he leads him to Christ, and he baptizes him. And then he disappears, and God m takes him and translates him from there and brings him to another spot. Miraculous things in the life of this deacon. And I want you to see something else about him. He lived in Caesarea, Philip the Evangelist, and he had four daughters who prophesied. Could you imagine that? Four young daughters he had. See, and I want to show you this. When you and I as parents serve God and serve the purposes of God, not just play church, not just play Christianity, not just do the religious thing. When we actually serve the purpose of God for our life, that is going to trickle down upon our children. That's going to trickle down upon our sons and our daughters. Now, I know, look, I'm not trying to bring condemnation on anybody, but if you've been living right in front of them, you've been doing your best, you've been holding up Jesus, you've been holding up the standard in your house, listen to me, train up a child in the way they should go, and when they're old, they shall not depart from it. So realize, you, you, you know, you might have children that are going off crazy and they're doing crazy stuff and they're scaring the heck out of you. But if you're serving God and you're loving Jesus and you raise him that way, stand on the word of God and believe that God is going to have his way in their lives. When I was in Bible college, we had a speaker come in and he was talking about, you know, us. We were graduating, we were getting launched off into the ministry and he said, you know, having children or spiritual children is 
It's kind of like watching a, a fighter jet take off the deck of an aircraft carrier. Most of us have never seen this, but if you stood on the deck of an aircraft carrier and they launched an F-18 off it, when it goes over the edge of the lip of the deck, it disappears from view. It dips down. And it's either going to power up and take off or it's going to go into the drink. And every time they launch a jet, there's crews on standby if that thing doesn't power up and it goes in. That's the way it is, you know, with our children. That's the way it is with us in the kingdom. There's that moment where, you know, they, they are off and, and they dip out of sight and it scares the blessed assurance out of you. And everybody's like, <gasps> but thank God for the power of God and the faithfulness of God's word that they power up and God lifts them up and they take off. Amen to do the will of God for their own lives. So Stephen, powerful man of God, the first martyr. Philip the evangelist, a powerful man of God, signs, wonders, and miracles. Children that serve the Lord. Listen, wouldn't you like to walk in signs, wonders, and miracles, amen? Wouldn't you like to see the miracles of God visiting your life? Is there anybody here tired of living an ordinary, mundane life? This is not what God saved us for. So we could work ourselves to death and retire and go on vacation and sit on the beach. Oh, that's all that's what I ever wanted to do. Come on, step up your game. God's got more for you than that. He wants to use us to bring the gospel, to be bond servants, to lead people to Christ, to do exploits for our God, to do the exciting work of the ministry. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, I see excitement on some faces this morning. So, overseers and deacons, two powerful offices that the church needs. We need chiefs, we need Indians, we need everybody working together as servant ministers to make the body of Christ work. Verse 2, I'm going to very quickly conclude with this. This is part of the, the greeting here, the salutation, as it were. Paul says in verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul's letters, all of them include grace to you and peace. Uh, first and second Timothy say grace, mercy, and peace. But grace to you and peace are always there. Now, this was a common salutation in both Greek and Hebrew correspondence. Paul uses it in a way that he emphasizes the meaning of grace in light of the fact that we are now believers. So grace and peace to you, kind of just like a cliche. But Paul is emphasizing something here. Why? Because for us as believers, grace has a new meaning. See, when you heard the word grace before you were saved, you were like, grace, yeah, whatever that means. That's what you say before dinner, grace, that, I don't know. You know, but when you're saved, you know it's grace, unmerited favor that allowed God to save a sinner like me and turn him into a saint, amen? That's grace. That's unmerited. We couldn't earn it. We couldn't deserve it. We couldn't work for it. We couldn't pay the tab. Well, I'm still working off my grace. I got 400 million years left. And, and no, listen, it's a free gift, salvation is. So Paul's saying grace to you and all of the meaning and the abundance of what grace means to us now that we're Christ and then peace. Notice the grace always comes before the peace. And I want to close with this. You can't have peace in life until you experience the grace of God. People think, oh, I want to just live and have fun and do all the things my flesh wants to do and not answer to anybody and not submit. To, no, and then someday maybe when I'm old and wrinkled and out of gas, I'll get saved. It doesn't work like that. More often than not, we get so entrenched in our worldliness that our hearts become hardened and we don't, 
even want the grace when we need it so bad at the end of our lives. So peace comes from knowing the Prince of Peace. Grace comes to our lives, and that allows us to have peace. Why? Because we've been forgiven. We are part of the family of God. We're on our way to heaven, and no matter what life throws out of us, God has got us in the palm of his hand. Grace and peace to you this morning in Jesus' name. Let's bow our heads. You might be here this morning, and you heard this message, and you're hearing about grace and peace and the gospel. And listen, the gospel is the good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ is this, that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. You and I just have to believe on what Jesus did on the cross in our place. Jesus didn't die on the cross for himself. He died for sinners like us. And what did he do? He paid the price of our sin, that if we would just believe and receive him uh, for what he's done in our place, we would be saved and we wouldn't have to answer for our sins ourselves. You say, what will happen if I surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ? He'll save you. He'll forgive you. He'll fill you with the Holy Spirit. He'll give you grace that leads to peace. If you want the peace of God, it comes from the grace of God, and that comes from surrendering to the Son of God. Anyone here this morning want to ask Jesus to be the Lord of their life? If you do, just lift up your hand. Anyone here need Jesus to come in and bring grace? Hands going up, I can't see. Well, let's say a prayer together. Say, Lord Jesus, I come to you a sinner, and I need a Savior. I know you're the good shepherd, and I'm a lost lamb. So I confess my sin, and I repent of it, and I receive you as my Savior and my Lord. Fill me with your spirit. Forgive me of my sins, and direct my life. From this moment forward, I belong to you in Jesus' name. Come on, let's give him a hand clap of praise. Thank you, Lord.